So we're currently teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is probably uh, the most famous uh, sermon in all of the Bible, and definitely the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus. And some consider this sermon to actually be the epitome of the teachings of Jesus, and therefore the essence of what Christianity is really all about. Now, this sermon is Jesus's answer to the universal philosophical and religious question question, how can one truly be happy? Or what is the actual good life? This is um, the main theme of Jesus's greatest sermon and really the heartbeat of what the gospel is all about. It's about human flourishing. It's about human wholeness. This is what God has created us for. This is what the story of the gospel is all about. What God has redeemed humanity for is human flourishing and human wholeness. And Jesus, as the king of the kingdom of God here on the scene, who is proclaiming the kingdom of God and inviting people into the kingdom of God and demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. We saw weeks ago how he is healing every affliction, a disease, any demonic presence. He is healing and bringing wholeness to anyone and everyone around him. This is a display of the power of the kingdom of God. And so here we have it, that Jesus is, with this sermon, inviting us to learn the way of the kingdom. He's inviting his disciples to learn this language, to learn this way of life, in order to live into what they are, who God has purchased and redeemed them to be. Now, with that said, this sermon is then not rules to get us into the kingdom of God, right? God invites us into his kingdom because King Jesus has made that way possible by his own life, death, and resurrection. He's opened up the way to the kingdom and invited us to experience the flourishing whole life of God. This sermon is also not unattainable standards just to get us to see we can't possibly keep the rules, so we should stop trying. Um, I would love to go into this more, but that idea is just pretty ridiculous, right? Like there's stuff in the Bible that just we're told and you really can't do anything about it. really don't think that's the purpose of Jesus' sermon. The sermon is also not rules of how we must behave if we are to stay in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's actually so much deeper than that. Jesus wants this sermon to get into our bones, to be a part of our very being. Uh, this sermon is not just a vision of what life will be like one day when the kingdom of God physically comes to this earth, and so we're just kind of waiting uh, in hope and anticipation of that vision. I believe that what Jesus is saying in this sermon is this, now that I am here, ruling and reigning, God's new world is coming into being. And once we realize that, we can see that this sermon are the habits of heart which anticipate the new world here and now. This is how we live in and live out the kingdom of God until the physical kingdom of God reigns here on earth. These are the signs of life, the language of life, the life of the kingdom of the new creation, the kingdom which Jesus came to bring. Now, I love this quote by Joachim Jeremiah, and I quote it every week as this kind of frame or filter for the Sermon on the Mount. So he says this, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. It's a beautiful picture of this invitation of what Jesus is calling us into in this sermon. My people are to be my signs that my kingdom has already come. It's come in their lives. It's brought this healing and wholeness to their very lives. And now that healing and wholeness is being, you know, uh, spread out through them. Now, I think it's very important for us to realize, even with all that I've said, this sermon isn't Jesus saying, hey, church, disciples, be who you're supposed to be. But he's actually saying, 
become who you are, right? And there's so much language in the sermon about God as Father, as us as children. And so this is an invitation from Jesus to grow in the family identity and likeness. So become who you are. That's what this invitation is really all about. And this sermon has been used for centuries to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus and into that life of the kingdom of God. And we are believing that that's what God will do for us as well as we submit ourselves to his word. Now, Jesus' sermon begins with nine pronouncements of blessing known as the Beatitudes. And this comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning happy. Now, we don't use that word, and even the word, uh, the word beatus, like in our modern-day vernacular, right? And even the word happy does not really get to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. And I love the way that Pastor Richard and Pastor Brian have been uh, using the word flourishing instead of the word happy, because I think flourishing really captures the idea of what Jesus is actually talking about here, and actually the biblical idea of blessing all throughout Scripture. See, blessedness or flourishing in biblical terms is not a life free of all care. It's actually a life who has a strong, unshakable foundation. It's a life that's never moved uh, no matter the situation. It's a life that's fruitful in all the right places in all seasons. It's a life that's fulfilled and at peace regardless of life's varied circumstances and experiences. Um, it's a life that always shows signs of life. I think a beautiful picture would be like an evergreen tree. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? Like no matter what the season or the situation is, the life produces fruit. So this flourishing in Scripture is it's a life in the midst of the real world of evil, injustice, and pain. And Jesus begins his sermon by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like, what true well-being looks like in the kingdom of God. And so then the Beatitudes, when we step back and look at it in the context of all of Scripture, they're an implicit invitation to consider what the best way of being in the world is and to pursue it, right? That's why we learn this behavior. That's why we grow into this identity. This teaching of Jesus is to be practiced by the people of God in order to just be assimilated into our lives. Now, true flourishing is a life that is lived in light of the eternal kingdom of God the kingdom that Jesus claims is here, now, and at work through him. And this morning, we're looking at this seventh beatitude together, which Jesus says, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now, in my personal opinion, I do not think there is any greater beatitude. And the reason I feel this way is because of this incredible offer to share an identity with God. You know, John the Apostle, when he wrote in his little epistle, 1 John, to the church, he said, can you imagine the out-of-this-world kind of love that we should be called children of God? There is no higher honor in all of time or eternity than to be given a name in the family of God. Yeah, that mean the kingdom, the uh, vision of God. I mean, all of these are incredible, obviously, right? But to me, this is it. This is the mountain peak. To be called a child, a beloved child of God. There's nothing greater. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of peacemaking. Maybe it's NATO, maybe it's the Peace Corps, maybe you know, it's a flower child from Woodstock back in like the 1960s or something like that. Or maybe it's a Maharashi, right? Or something like, when it comes to your mind when you think peacemaker, right? But peace in biblical terms is much more than just an outward state of like the absence of war or hostility. And it's also more than an inward state of tranquility or peace of mind. Uh, the biblical term for peace is actually this uh, Hebrew word shalom. 
And the interesting thing about shalom is actually it conveys this idea of a circle. And the circle represents communal well-being, right? Like um, right relationships in every direction, in every facet of life. And this well-being, this peace, uh, is directly tied to God, to his presence and, and also to his kingdom. In the book of Judges, uh, God is called, this is beautiful, his, his name, Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is Shalom. The Lord is peace. Or there's another place in the New Testament where Paul calls God the God of peace. And so even in the way that we think about just the very character and nature of God, you know, when we say things like God is love, God is peace. St. Augustine actually said, God alone is the perfect place of peace. This is who he is in his very nature and being. Now, God's kingdom is also continually described as a kingdom of peace. I love this passage in Isaiah where Isaiah foresees the kingdom of God coming into being through God's Messiah, God's anointed king. Isaiah writes this, For to us a child is born, and to us the son has been gifted, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So you get this picture of this kingdom that is just, just producing again and again peace. It just continually moves out from its borders, right? Peace everywhere it spreads. Or here's another one from Isaiah 32. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness, what that righteousness produces will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Now, in some sense, we don't really get like the longing of this kind of passage. When was the last time your city was invaded by, you know, like marauders or, you know, pirates? Anybody? But, you know, this was so true of the people of Israel. How many times they had been displaced, right? Down to Egypt, out to, um, you know, Assyria, to Babylon. I mean, you know, the book of Isaiah is all picturing that there will be this final dwelling place. And guess what? The children can play in the streets without any fear or harm. You don't have to lock your doors. You don't have to lock away your possessions. There will be total peace in this place. And so you could just imagine for the people of God how they longed for this. How many times they had just experienced this like uprooting, just this desolation of their cities, their homeland, their nation, their identity. And so there was a deep, deep longing for the city of God, for the reign and rule of God, that kingdom of peace. Now, the kingdom of God is directly tied with this idea of Shalom. They're intertwined in Scripture because where God is present and ruling His peace and glory, it permeates every part of the creation. And we can actually see this in Genesis where when God creates the world, remember the language that God used, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates, you know, trees and plants and the seas and the, you know, brings the heavenly lights, the sun, moon, and stars all in being, and it's good, and it's good, and he creates humanity, and it's double good. There is goodness that is permeating the creation of God. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, though, we see the negative effects, what happens when God's presence is removed from humanity, and we see that there's breakdown between God and humans, humans within themselves, humans between other humans, and humans and the surrounding creation. We can infer from this that before sin entered into the creation, there was shalom 
right relationships all around between God and humanity, between humans and themselves, between humans with other humans, and between humans and the creation. This is what God created humanity for. And this is what God is leading us to eventually. The kingdom of God is a full restoration of all that is broken and wrong with the world. All sin, evil, and selfishness being finally removed and right relationships between humans and God, between humans and themselves, between humans and other humans, and between humanity and the natural world around us. This is the picture of shalom. This is what the people of God longed for. They longed for the peace of God, the city of God. So that's how we should understand peace and even this idea of peacemakers that Jesus is talking about. Now, who are the peacemakers? I think it's easy to walk through the Beatitudes and to kind of like compartmentalize all of them. Like in the kingdom of God, the pure of heart, well, they're over in that quadrant, you know, and the People over here are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're kind of compartmentalized into all these places. The way we should actually read these, though, is that these are all characteristics that should be present in the life of God's people, that the pure in heart are the peacemakers, that the peacemakers are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are the meek of the earth, that those who are meek are also those who are mourning and who are poor in spirit. All of these go together. So it's really those who belong to the kingdom of God. That's who the peacemakers are. And the reason they're peacemakers is because they live under God's kingdom reign. And therefore, they live out that citizenship, that identity as members of God's kingdom. Now, I love the way Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, 19-22. This is beautiful. He says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once, you and I, we were alienated, outsiders, even enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, but now... Jesus has, excuse me, God has reconciled you by Jesus' physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So I want you to think just what we talked about a minute ago, right? We see the breakdown of God's peace in all of these areas uh, with humanity, right? This is what Paul's saying here. Jesus Christ has brought peace between you and God He has removed the shame and the guilt that so often brings this dissonance and distance between ourselves and our own psyche. He has made us brothers and sisters, the family of God, and he has restored all things. See, what's being talked about here is actually the restoration of the shalom of God to the people of God. That's what Paul is describing here. God has made right all that was broken within human relationships. So what should we do then? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, all of this is from God. It comes out of God's person and very nature who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Messiah and now has given this ministry of reconciliation to us. This is incredible. It says, the work that God was doing in and through Jesus Messiah, reconciling the world to himself, bringing it close to him, making it one with him. He is now committed to his people. This is radical. The ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of peacemaking that Jesus wrought in the world continues through his people. It's no wonder that at the end of these Beatitudes that Jesus would look at this crowd of disciples and say, look, you people, you're the light of the world. It's you. He might as well be saying, you people are the peacemakers. Without you, there's no peacemaking because this is the real stuff of peace that Christ has done and he has entrusted this ministry of peacemaking to us. 
Paul goes on to say we are Christ's representatives, his ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Jesus' behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, it's no wonder, right, that the, the identity here is of children of God, so linked, so brought into the family DNA, the family business of God and of, excuse me, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. This is what they do. They make peace. And so therefore, the children of God, they take up the family cause and business and make peace in the world. Remember what we looked at last week. The wholeness of person is the main theme and goal of the sermon. And so it just flows then that those who receive peace with God will express that peace by making peace with those around them. Or another way to put it is if the love of God has been poured into our hearts, what will flow from our hearts is God's love, right? Love of God will manifest itself in love of neighbor. We are kingdom ambassadors everywhere we go, spreading and making known the king and kingdom of peace through our lives and actions. You know, in a sense, we could think about it just peacemakers are the kingdom of God in action. They are on the move, taking ground, as it were, for God's kingdom. One way that I've often thought about mission, local mission and outreach, is I think about where are the vacuums in our cities of where God's kingdom, his peace, his righteousness, his justice are not at work. God's kingdom peacekeepers, or excuse me, peacemakers, are called to those vacuums to bring the light of Christ, to bring healing, to bring hope to bring right relationships it's the kingdom of god taking ground in all places that it is absent now we are actively at work to make peace when we tell others about everything god has done to make peace with the very ones who have rejected and offended him uh, Pastor Richard and I, we do this thing every week where we're just kind of like spitballing, going back and forth, like, oh, this is what I'm thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, and he's always helping me frame things. Actually, by the way, there's like 20 people plus that like help invest in these sermons. So anytime people like Char, that was a great sermon. Like, just by the way, there's like a whole community of people helping frame this for you guys. And I'm so thankful for their voices and their influence. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so we get this, all these different perspectives on things and you know, just a way to encourage you and equip you. But as Richard and I were talking, he shared this with me. It was beautiful. So we're actively making peace when we tell others about God and what he has done to make peace with them. Whether they've offended him, rejected him, uh, whatever it might be, we call that evangelism and witness. And the most powerful peacemaking and evangelism happens when that message of God's salvation is delivered by men and women who have experienced themselves that peace with God, right? That peace of God has worked in your life, and you are simply witnessing what God has done for you. You're sharing. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. The numbing is gone. The hiding is gone. The blaming is gone. And in its place is real peace with God through Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. We're just simply sharing and living out what God has already done in us. That is part of the work of peacemaking. Making known the peacemaking work that Jesus has accomplished. Now, let me just summarize this by saying this. Those who would conform their lives to what is described here in the Sermon on the Mount will find themselves transformed into peacemakers simply as a consequence of God's work in them. So understand it's not a matter of obeying a, you know, a command to become a peacemaker or striving after some abstract virtue called peacemaking, but rather it's a matter of participating in the life of the risen Jesus. 
That's what we're talking about. The one who is our peace, who is our virtue. Peacemakers is who we become as we conform our lives to this sermon, which is Jesus' life in us. Now, what does this peacemaking look like, just practically? And I've been thinking about this for a few weeks now. And I think just one thing, uh, before we get into kind of, you know, like the macro and the micro, I think what we have to think is the peacemaking that Jesus is talking about here is deeply relational. And what I mean by that is this, like many times just the language that we use and probably the mentality that we have as Christians is we're the saints, they're the sinners, we're the peacemakers, they're the chaotic people. It's kind of like this us versus them mentality. But I think it comes first and foremost as seeing humans created by God, created for peace, created for God's shalom. And what's wrong with humanity is that humanity is lost, first and foremost. Now, because of our lostness, we do all sorts of selfish, foolish things. The Bible calls this sin. It's brought a lot of brokenness, hurt, uh, and evil into the world. But humans, by their very nature, are first and foremost lost. That's why when Jesus talks about this, and when he's actually rebuking the Pharisees for their view of, you know, the rabble in Israel, he tells a story about lost coins, lost sheep, and lost children. And in every single one of these, well, actually in the first two stories that Jesus tells, someone goes out looking for the thing that is lost. Remember that? Like a woman loses a coin and so she goes out searching for it. She sweeps and orders her house and she finds the coin and then she tells everybody and they throw this party. It must have been a big coin, right? You know, and then there's this other story about this sheep that goes missing. Same thing, right? The shepherd leaves everything else the importance, the priority of this lost thing being reclaimed. And then we come to the last story, and a son goes out and is lost. And guess what? No one goes looking for him. And this is the tragedy of the parable that we often miss. Jesus is telling this to the religious leaders. You should have gone out looking for the lost, and instead you scorn them. And instead, you look down upon them and you curse them. This is not the heart of God. The heart of God is to reclaim what is lost and to see it restored. That's what God had for us. That's why I'm standing here right now. And that's why many of you are sitting here right now. Because we were lost. And Jesus brought us near. He went out looking for us. This is the heart of God. And so peacemaking, church, is deeply relational. Now, on a large macro scale, I think we've seen, even in our time, beautiful peacemaking wrought in the world. I think of the work that Desmond Tutu did in South Africa with the anti-apartheid. I mean, you guys, it is a miracle that that country was not ripped to smithereens. That what happened in Darfur, what happened in Rwanda did not happen in South Africa is a miracle of the peacemaking work of the gospel. And it, it was through the teaching and the leadership of Desmond Tutu, an Anglican bishop, that that community was led to living in a context of peace. This is the beautiful work that the gospel of peace can bring. I think of Doctors Without Borders. These doctors are going into places where there is no health care and they're bringing healing and help and wholeness to countries that are cut off from proper health care or proper care. I think of those doing refugee work all around the world, bringing comfort and help to those who have been displaced from their homes, their families, and their national identities. I think of the beautiful work of marriage and family therapists to get dirty with couples who are tearing their own homes apart and to do the deep work of seeing them reconciled. I think of counselors and social workers, those who work in foster care and adoption. All of these are, they actually have their roots in the Christian tradition, the Christian church. And all of these are beautiful manifestations of what peacemaking can look like on this macro global scale. 
Almost like think of it as like, gosh, what does it look like when peacemakers get together in hordes? It looks something like this. Countries are united. People experience care and comfort. They're brought from chaos to order, from death to life. That's what it looks like when peacemakers gather together and do the work of Jesus in his name. Now, this, of course, is partially what we should be thinking of, the way that the gospel and the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus to rescue and redeem humanity, to unite us to God and one another, makes peace among peoples, nations, tribes, and families. But, of course, that peacemaking applies to the big moments of life. And, you know, I just like to think about myself. Okay, what am I called to do? How am I called to incarnate this peacemaking and live it out in my own life? Because if we don't start there, guess what? We'll never affect cultures and nations. We'll never change the trajectory of our community if we don't start in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own marriages and families, among the people that God has called us to. There's this quote by this um, Christian author named Lewis. I've shared it before, but I think oftentimes, right, we can be like, oh yeah, peacemaking. Oh yeah, I just love everybody. And sometimes this is just a way of actually not loving anybody in particular. Isn't that true? It's like, you know, you're part of a book club and somebody shows up. It's like, okay, well, what was your favorite part of the book? Oh, all of it. You're like, okay, cool. Like any part, part in particular? The whole thing. Like you didn't read the book. And we all know it, right? And sometimes we do this as well, right? Think, oh yeah, no, peacemaking, I love it. I, I, I love it. It's like, okay, how is this actually being worked out in your life? Are you making peace? Are you working for peace in your own life? Are we at peace with the people that we're actually connected to? Or is it like, oh, no, I, I am, but these are just really difficult people. But yeah. Same. <laughs> no, like, that's the point. Are we for reconciliation in our personal relationships? Jesus' vision for his people is that reconciliation and peacemaking would flow first from within, out to neighbor, then to enemy, then to nations and the cultural issues of our time. See, Jesus' vision of flourishing and greater righteousness concerns the whole person. It concerns me, my marriage, my kids, or my roommate, my siblings or parents, my brothers and sisters, my coworkers, friends. And then so it's like these concentric circles, right, that just work their way out. That is the kind of peace or the places that we are to be working God's peace. Now, let me just say this, healthy marriages know the difficulty and depth of this kind of peacemaking that Jesus is talking about. And I just use this as an example because Grace and I often talk about this, and this can be applied to anybody, right? Like you don't have to be married. Grace and I have to talk about this, man, we're going to fight. Like we just are. We're two broken, sinful people who misunderstand each other and miscommunicate. So we're going to fight. You know what though? We're going to have a good fight, right? We're actually going to go to the depths. We're going to figure out actually what's wrong underneath the thing. And sometimes, like, I'm a kind of emotional fighter. Um, I don't know if anybody else, like, relates to that in the room. But, like, I just like, go for the emotions, and I speak for my emotions. And Grace will be like, no, tell me exactly what you saw, what bothers you. And I'm like, I, I, I can't name it, but I know I had a feeling. You know, it's like I'm all feelings driven, and she's like, facts, you know. And so we have to do a lot of work to just get down to what actually going on. And we get down into the deep brokenness. We go into, gosh, past hurts of the way that we grew up, the context of these things, the brokenness of our own families, the fears that we have because of that. And then the selfishness or the self-protectiveness. We do this deep work with one another in order to bring real unity and oneness. And I often say this about just our relationship. It's like, gosh, if we're on the same page, if we're one, we can do anything. Truly, like we've been through some of the most difficult things together. And because of just working for this unity, we've been able to do those things with grace. We have been able to do those things. And I would say, I'm, I'm proud of this, 
diffusing the fragrance of Christ. You know, I don't talk about this a whole lot because I don't like, not like trying to like pull on emotions and talk about sob stories, but our daughter was born with a congenital heart disease, and it was just like this horrific thing that happened. Twelve hours after she was born, you know, we're brought in and told, your daughter's dying. Uh, she has a heart disease, and it's like, and? You know, like that classic bedside manner of doctors, right? And just the sinking, hopeless feeling. But because we had been working out our relationship and doing this difficult work for years, gosh, we just went into like support mode with each other. And I am still so proud of this day of the way that we navigated that situation by God's grace to love one another, to support one another through it. It was one of the most beautiful, most richest moments of my marriage going through hell with her. And I would never <laughs> take it back because of the deep work that God did in and through us. This is the kind of unity that God wants to bring to our lives. Kind of one is, but it doesn't come through avoiding the hard and the difficult. It actually comes through like taking it head on. You know, the peacemaking work that we're talking about here, it actually is concerning yourself, throwing yourself into the midst of warring parties in order to bring about right relationships that produce peace. They bring oneness of mind, oneness of heart. Now, it's just not just healthy marriages. Healthy families know about this kind of peacemaking. As we wrestle with our mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers to create environments of shalom. Our family's in the midst of this right now. Healthy communities know about this kind of peacemaking. Because we're human and we wrong and hurt one another, sometimes even intentionally, Right? Peacemaking works to make sure that whatever comes between individuals and whole communities is exposed and expunged to bring unity and wholeness, to bring life and harmony to all. That's the kind of work that we're talking about here. Deeply relational work, but it's also costly. And we know that it's costly because of all the ways that Paul the Apostle, the prophets, talk about what it cost God to bring us to himself. It cost the very lifeblood of the Son of God. Remember in Isaiah 53, we're told that it was the chastisement upon Jesus that brought us peace. He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. And so as we enter into the peacemaking work of Messiah, to see it worked out through us, expect that this will be costly work, that it will actually cost you deeply, right? That it's going to cost your time. It will cost your person, mentally, physically, emotionally. It'll cost your finances and resources. You know, for 14 years, I pastored up in Northern California, and I can't tell you how many you know, times I sat just in the midst of broken marriages, and we did some deep, deep, deep work. And sometimes we did work, you know, there's over months and months and months only to have that couple actually turn on me and say like, oh, it's all your fault. It's like, my fault? I'm not even in this marriage. You know, but it's just like the cost it's like, God, what the heck? How many of us know that kind of cost though, right? Like, God, I, I try to make peace and I work all this and for naught. Well, yeah. The costly work of peacemaking. And sometimes we won't see a return on that work. That should not keep us from that because we are peacemakers. Because Christ has brought his peace in us. And he will work his peace through us. Now, let me just say this. I feel like I've alluded to it already, but let me just say this. We often make pseudo-peace, don't we? And we do this because we'll avoid the real and difficult things of life. We won't challenge or confront one another with hard things like compromise. Just like um, the failure to actually live out Christ-like character. Oh, gosh, we do this all the time with our kids. Like, no, no, that's not how we speak to one another. We speak patiently, you know, we speak intentionally. We have to do this kind of stuff all the time. But the way that we could just avoid this, right? It's so much easier if we just kind of go our ways. And because of that, we have 
peace because we're not in conflict, but we're also not unified. We're not in right relationship. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus' work of peacemaking is described not in serene, stress-free ways. Jesus goes to the cross. He goes through the blood and guts of Calvary. He goes through it to come out the other side in order to make peace between us and God, to reconcile enemies, sinners, and rebels, and make them sons and daughters, to make them sharers in the blessing and the goodness of God. Peacemaking is costly. Now, we talked about the macro, we talked about the micro, we talked about what this peacemaking will cost us. But can I just talk about maybe like principles or values of how we actually might do this? You know, earlier I talked about, you know, kind of looking at the world as these different vacuums and voids of the presence of God's peace or his righteousness and his goodness. And so let's think just in terms of not warring parties, but how might I bring God's shalom or peace to those around me just through care? or comfort, provision, or presence. Um, in first gathering, I was talking about how during the pandemic, um, our church was doing a, a food pantry. And, uh, you know, for years, I've been trying to, like, build relationships with our neighbors just to get to know them in order just to, you know, rub shoulders with them and eventually be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. And, I mean, I had neighbors that would totally make, like, avoid eye contact and all sorts of stuff. You know, I felt like I was doing, like, spiritual gymnastics just to get their attention. Um, but I'll never forget that through these food boxes, we were able to build bridges and able to offer, in a sense, like, let's just call it a gift of shalom. Like, gosh, like, you have fears about scarcity, about provision, and here's a gift of peace. Here's a gift, you know, that you might know God's provision and care for you. And I just want us to think for a moment just about our own lives, our neighbors, the situations that God has brought us to, like just the people around us at work whose lives are probably chaotic, who fear just like we do about scarcity, about provision, about bills, all that kind of stuff. Church, what are ways that we can bring order to the chaos of their lives, that we can bring life where there is death and a lack? What are ways that we might bring the presence of God, that we might just bring his shalom to these areas where it is not present. I believe that this is actually really like the heart of the idea here. It's not just warring parties, but it's anywhere in this life where we see a lack of God's peace. Yes, on every facet, peace with God, peace with someone between themselves, peace you know, between members of humanity and peace, between, you know, that person and the world around them. Where can we build bridges and tear down walls in order to bring peace to people's lives? In the same way that Jesus built bridges and tore down walls to bring the peace of God to our own lives, where can we do that? What might be a gift of peace to someone else that you know to make known the peace of God? Now, Let's spend the rest of our time just talking about the promise. And I, I said earlier, I just, man, this promise just gets me to be called a child of God. Now, as I was studying this, I was just like, oh, this is interesting. Like, who is identifying, like, peacemaker, child of God? Like, who is doing that? Is it God? Is it you know, those outside in the community. Now, Jesus talks about this actually happening with those who are outsiders of God's kingdom. He says, you will do these good works and others will see them and they will glorify your Father in heaven. That those around us actually make this connection. When they see the good works of Jesus done in our lives, they realize it's otherworldly. It's something else. And it's, wow, this is the divine presence showing up in our midst. What an incredible work that we get invited to, to make the peacemaking God known. Now, at first service, I, um, I talked about the wrong school when I mentioned this, but you guys remember West Nickel Mine School in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Anybody remember this? 2006, there was a school shooting at an Amish single schoolhouse, and the shooter killed 10 little girls 
They were ages 6 to 13. It was horrific. And then he turned the gun on himself. He said he did all this because of the deep pain he felt because God took his daughter. And so he wanted to repay God. Oh, it was horrific. And all these news agencies turned out you know, to report on this story. And I remember this article saying it like this. It was just interesting. However, in the hours and days following the shooting, another story developed that also caught the world's attention. The story of Amish grace and forgiveness. Now, the Amish people are Christian people. And at the core of their doctrine is this belief in the peacemaking work of God. And so this community attended the funeral of Charles Carl Roberts IV, the shooter. They went there to comfort his widow. They went there to console her in the loss of her own daughter as they mourned the loss of their daughters. And as the world looked on at this, they thought, what in the world is this? This is the peacemaking work of the gospel. It is otherworldly. It is upside down. It doesn't make sense. Because it's costly. But this is actually the work that Jesus does on the cross. Where the law says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That Jesus there on the cross, as He is reviled, as He is spat upon, as His face is beaten in, that what Jesus does is He will not return evil for evil, but what He does is He takes sin upon Himself. He swallows it, and He allows it to destroy Him that he might put sin to an end, that he might make peace between us and between God. That is the peace-making, costly work of the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. And when we live out that family identity and family likeness, it shocks the world. It shakes us out of our disenchantment and reminds us that there is a divine presence at work in the world. They are children of God. But if this identity and naming is of God himself, I want us to just think about that for a moment. That God, when we live out the family identity and likeness, that there is a deep, deep pride and joy that God has in us. Just like me. I love my kids all the time. I do. Deeply love them. Deeply committed to them. And when I see my children do what, you know, the values and principles of being a Broderson, when I see them just live that out naturally, I just think, that's mine. That's my kid. And I'm so proud of them and the character that they've worked hard to develop and live out. Think of God's pride in his people when we live out this identity. And he says to each one of us, my child in whom I am well pleased. This is, there is no higher praise, no higher honor than to hear that word of blessing, acceptance, affirmation from God our Father. It's the word we long for. It's a word that we all have in and through the work of Jesus Christ. They will be called children of God. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to take us back for a moment and think about that picture that we looked at in the beginning of Shalom, right? It's the circle and it's right relationships in every direction, every facet of life. Before sin and brokenness and death entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, humans were in right relationship with God, in harmony with God, Harmony with themselves, harmony with each other, harmony with the created world around them. And in some sense, actually J.R. Tolkien uses this in his creation myth, in some sense, creation is singing God's harmony. They're singing God's song. And everything in all of the created order is harmonizing together God's beautiful song of goodness. But when Adam and Eve turned in on themselves through sin and selfishness, struck out on their own, they created dissonance and discord in the song of God. 
Because God had set them over all the, work of their, all the works of his hands, this discord and dissonance begin to infect all of the creation. And all of a sudden, where there was harmony, now there is discord and disharmony. There is a cacophony. There is sin and brokenness at work in the world. But through the peacemaking work that Jesus has brought through the blood of his cross, we are brought back into the beautiful song of God. God sings or has sung his beautiful song over our lives and it begins to permeate us. We begin to be caught up in the song. And all of our life begins to harmonize with God's great song. To be in shalom then, in a sense, is to be brought back into the great song of God, the song that we were created to sing, and to allow that song to permeate us completely so that our whole being is singing God's song, right? So we're in right relationship with God, right relationship with ourselves. The shame, the guilt is gone. The hiding is gone. We're in right relationship with one another, and we're in right relationship with the world around us. In a sense, I think Jesus is just simply saying this, church, sing my song. Sing with me and sing it out to anyone and everyone around you. And so church, I would just invite us, will we sing the song of God? And if, this, if you're here today and like you've never heard any of this about God's peace that he has for you, about this desire to bring wholeness and healing to every facet of your life, this song is for you as well. To make this the theme of your life. To be caught up in the harmony and the melody of God, and to allow God to sing it through every facet of your life by your kindness, your help, your compassion, your forgiveness, your right doing, your just living, that God's shalom would be sung, would be played through your life. That is Jesus' offer here. Of course, we won't sing this song perfectly, but will we make it our aim to sing it and to sing it beautifully? That's really up to us. Now, as the band comes out and we take time just to allow the Spirit just to bring up all those things that we've gathered this week, maybe the feelings that we have, the wrongs that have been done to us, the wrongs that we have done to others, you know, this table, here at this table, Jesus has made a way possible that none of that will come between us and will come between Him. And so he has provided his own life blood for our healing and our cleansing to make sure that nothing will come between us. And so church, we invite you to come to the table of the Lord and to make peace with Jesus once again, to allow his offer uh, to bring you to this table, to have fellowship with him, and then that you would go out and that you would not allow anything to come between you and others because of this peacemaking work between you and Jesus Messiah. So come forward, come to the table, cast your cares upon him, allow him to speak peace to the deep broken places of your heart, and go in the peace of God. Amen.